I'm pretty sure I got this story from someone who got it from Tim Keller, who probably got it from Jesus. But this is the story. It's Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was this uh, this lady, a writer, a hundred years ago, and she was the first woman uh, to graduate from Oxford. She wrote detective novels, and she wasn't very beautiful. Um, and I tell you this because of what she wrote about. She wrote these detective novels about this guy named Lord Peter Whimsey. He was an English aristocrat who, uh, he's like a detective, like a Sherlock Holmes type figure. And about halfway through the series, suddenly a female character kind of marches her way into the story. She happens to be uh, one of the first women graduates of Oxford who writes detective novels who was not very beautiful. And in this story, there creates, Dorothy creates a love story between these two characters. Over several novels, she and Peter Whimsey meet Harriet Vane and Peter Whimsey, and they get to know each other, and they fall in love, and they get married, and they live happily ever after in these stories. People obviously notice that Harriet Vane sure did look like her creator, Dorothy Sayers. That perhaps she wrote herself into the story. In the very first verse that we read tonight in verse 10, you see that a new pronoun shows up in Acts for the first time. Did you catch it? All of a sudden, we are going about this mission. Who's we? Luke is now writing himself into the story. The rest of Acts, Luke is now present. Up until now, he's been getting the stories from these other apostles. But now he's a part of the story. He's writing himself into the story. But we see also in these three very distinct narratives that Luke isn't the only one who's written himself into the story. The creator of these stories has written himself into the narrative as well. And what I hope that we see in these three stories is one character who consistently shows up, who disrupts and who meets individual needs of individual people right where they are. Jesus himself is writing himself into the story. And as we consider these narratives tonight, I hope that you'll consider how Jesus may be writing himself into your story or how he already has. In fact, I really think you'll identify with one of these three stories. This is why I didn't want to leave any of them out. I think they're so good. They're so separate and distinct And I hope that you'll identify with one of them, the wealthy intellectual seeker, the possessed child slave or the blue collar failure. And I'll go through each one, but each of them encountered the same savior, Jesus Christ. And hasn't that been the story all along? People from lots of different backgrounds encountering one Jesus. The story that the church uh, is that God is building in the church. And, and, and many of you have asked me this semester, and I'll just be honest, a lot of you have asked me this semester, what's up with all the diversity stuff? Some of you have asked me that, and we've had some good conversations about it. Like, why is it that we keep talking about cross-cultural stuff this semester? And my hope is that, like, Acts answers that question for you. As we continue to study the pages of scriptures in RUF, I hope that you see that cross-cultural ministry is not an afterthought. Uh, This is something that is in the very heart of God from the very beginning. He's always been about gathering people who are different than each other from all over the world, from various cultures and backgrounds, from various ethnic uh, identities, racial backgrounds across socioeconomic structures. 
He's gathering a diverse group of people and he's building his church that will be made up of people from every tongue, tribe, language, nation, people group. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story of Revelation. It's the story of heaven. Church is called to break down the natural dividing barriers. Christians are called to fight against the natural divisions that are in our culture. Things like racism and prejudices and sexism and all these other isms that separate people. So the church that Jesus is building is a church that crosses all natural cultural barriers because of the cross-cultural love of a cross-bearing Savior. That's the church that he's building. And there's beautiful unity and diversity. And so I think, personally, you can't faithfully read these stories and acts without seeing all of the color that jumps off the otherwise black and white pages of Scripture. So that's why we're focusing on diversity, because it's literally the focus of the Scriptures themselves. So to quote Russ Whitfield one more time, the Bible is a cross-cultural document of cross-cultural origin about a cross-cultural Savior written to produce a cross-cultural people to the glory of God. And so we see it here tonight, these three stories. I want, I want that to be so clear. This comes, I'll give you a quote from a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce. He looks at this, these three stories as the church in Philippi is being planted in this passage. And he says, what we have is three individuals who were singled out by Luke among all those who were influenced for good by the gospel. But they differ so much from one another that he might have just selected them so deliberately in order to show how the saving power of the name of Jesus was shown in the most diverse types of men and women. That's why these three stories are being told. So with that in mind, let's consider the first character. The first person who meets Jesus is the story of the wealthy intellectual seeker. Who is this woman? We know her as as Lydia. This could have been her actual name or more of a reference to where she was from, the Lydian lady. Uh, But we know her as Lydia. Here's what also we know about Lydia. Lydia was a working woman who did really, really well in her business, right? She was most likely very wealthy because purple dye was a commodity in her day. The region she was from was known for its dye, and so she was a merchant who clearly traveled selling purple cloths. And so in today's term, Lydia would have been like a high-end regional sales manager for Louis Vuitton, and she would have been from Augusta Road, Greenville or something. Like, this is Lydia. We also know about Lydia is that she's interested in religion. Did you catch that? She's very interested in religion. Notice that Paul and Luke and whoever else was with him, they found Lydia with these other women praying outside of the city. Most likely she was with some Jews and non-Jews, and they were praying outside of the city because there wasn't a synagogue in the city. Normally the missionaries would go straight to the synagogue and begin to preach, but instead they couldn't find one, and they went and found this prayer group, this small group Bible study. And so they go to them, and they begin to talk about Jesus. And so here's Lydia hanging out with Jews, but she herself was not a Jew, but she was interested. She was very interested in religion. She was an intellectual seeker. She had questions, but she had not found what she was looking for or who she was looking for yet. But we see at the end of verse 14 is that he found her. Jesus writes himself into Lydia's story because Jesus loves seekers. He loves the wealthy. He loves devoted intellect. Jesus loves women. 
And that's not a joke or some kind of small throwaway line. Jesus loves women. And the reason I bring that up is because you may or may not know that women in this time were not treated well by society. They were not looked upon uh, with much respect. And here you have Luke emphasizing that this woman worked and that she was wealthy. It goes to show you how Christianity from the very beginning is itself countercultural. It fights against some of the cultural norms. You, you may have heard the, one of the big news stories from last week in the midterm elections uh, was all of the attention on the number of women, and particularly women of color who are elected uh, to different positions in our country that won their races. I think it's fantastic. We should celebrate uh, the ways that many women are serving and leading in our country. But this is not new news to Christians. God is always called... And he's always gifted and he's always worked through women in a variety of ways to minister and to serve and to lead in his church. Women like Lydia, who Jesus loved and whose heart he opened to receive the message of the gospel. It says it right there in the text, right? Did you hear it? The Lord, it says, open her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. In other words, Paul preached, but God illuminated Paul opened his mouth, but God was the one who worked in her heart. Paul turned on the flashlight, but God directed the beam right into the darkened heart of Lydia. Though she was a seeker, she was still a sinner, as we all are. And God directed the beam right into her heart to shine the light of the gospel there. And like Lydia, we cannot see unless God opens our eyes. This has been a theme of Acts all along. You've heard it uh, many different passages this semester when Luke has said things like, as many as the Lord appointed believed. To quote John Stott, another scholar, he says, yes, the message was Paul's, but the saving initiative was God's alone. So we see that Lydia responded to the gospel of Jesus because he wrote himself into her story. And she responded in faith that he was who he says he was and that he was the very answer to all of her questions. All of her intellectual, deep questions, all of her spiritual thinking and longing was met in Jesus. And so here's the first lesson. I'll put little lessons in our outline tonight. One lesson for each point. So here's the first lesson for tonight. It's this. God has to open hearts. God has to open hearts. When it comes to things like evangelism or sharing your faith or confronting someone who's in a rough place, you may say the words, but God has to be the one to act. He's the one who opens hearts to receive the message. You turn on the flashlight, but God directs the beam. And I hope that this is as encouraging as it is freeing. For years, and I'll be very honest with you, for years, I did not believe this. As a Christian, I didn't believe that God was the one who opened heart. I thought my words were the ones that convinced people to believe. And I carried a tremendous burden. Every time I opened my mouth to try to share the gospel with someone that I knew wasn't a Christian, I would be so consumed with what if I get it wrong? What if I say the wrong thing? I don't use the right argument. My apologetics are off or I'm quoting the wrong scripture. And what if they don't believe? What if they die and they go to hell and they didn't believe because I did not communicate it well? That is a horrible, horrible guilt to live with and a lot of power that you don't have. 
God is the one who opens up hearts. And that should be incredibly freeing for you as you engage any non-Christian friend or family member that God's brought into your life. Scripture emphasizes that you speak, but God works. You share, but God opens hearts. This is why, by the way, you pray for your unbelieving friends. And even if maybe you aren't agreeing with me that God opens heart, do you pray for unbelieving friends anyway? Why do you do that? Here's why, because you believe God opens hearts. Why else would you pray for God to convince someone of the gospel if you don't believe he could? God opens hearts. It's what he does, and he loves to do it. God alone holds the power. And so we pray and we share. Lydia believed because God opened her eyes to see that she had been searching all along for him. And so she was baptized, both she and her whole household. And this would have included both servants and children if she had any. And there's so much more we could say about that. But even the the covenant sign of baptism points to the reality that we receive God's grace as a gift. Whether you're dunked or sprinkled or baked or whatever you are when it comes to baptism. I don't know if you're baked, but you're, you're passive because God's grace is showering over you. God's grace washes over us, and that's what baptism represents. That's why in my tradition, we, we even baptize our children. We believe that they're a part of the covenant family of God, that they are marked with the sign that they are part of the family of God. The baptism itself doesn't save them. That's never the point of baptism. Baptism isn't salvation. But baptism is a promise of salvation for those who have put their faith in Jesus. And so there's Lydia, the intellectual seeker. God opened her heart. And when God opened her heart, she opened her home. Do you see that? She opened her home to the church. You know, the church in Philippi, the, the book of Philippians, it starts right here. This church is planted in the home of Lydia. She was a charter member. And we still have two other members to kind of work through. The next is the story of the possessed child slave. Someone else who encounters Christ who cannot be more different than Lydia. The story may have surprised you or bothered you there in the middle section that we read while the missionaries were, uh, um, it was either right before or right after they met Lydia, they began to be followed by a young girl who was possessed by a demon. It says for several days she followed them and she would just say things, even things that were true, which seems a little odd, but uh, the Bible says this woman had a, or this girl had a spirit of divination. So um, this would be this would describe someone who uh, would have a spirit within them that was often associated with like these mythic temple oracles. Uh, the Greeks would call people like this um, ventriloquists because they would just be speaking for some spirit. Now, I know it's hard to stomach and understand in some ways, but we see this all throughout Scripture. And so they would make these predictions or these prophecies and strange and foreign voices. But she says something that's true, and that may strike you as kind of weird, right? She says, of these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. But you have to remember that this is a classic strategy of Satan. To try to link the Christians with the crazies. To try to link Christians with, with something that just feels like a, like a cult. That's what he's always done from the very beginning. He twists truth. He makes it sound like it's true, but it's a little bit off and a little bit crazy. And so that's what he's trying to essentially debunk Paul's ministry. Because Satan is the, 
the chief of confusion. That's what he does. So eventually Paul cast out this demon after several days, something the apostles would do because Jesus gave them the power to do that. I don't love the translation of verse 18. Verse 18 says that Paul was annoyed. Did any of you giggle a little bit when you saw that? Like it, it looks kind of funny. Like he was just like annoyed. He was like, get out. And so the reason I don't like that translation is because we associate the word annoyed with like you being annoyed with your roommate for leaving all the dirty dishes piled up in the sink for a semester or being annoyed with your roommate for leaving all their dirty clothes piled up on the couch for a year. And so you are annoyed and you want to cast out that dirty demon of darkness from within your home. Like that's, that's what, that's how we read the word annoyed. I don't recommend you try it, but nevertheless. So here's what I want to, I want to kind of give a better translation maybe here. Not my translation. This is from other translations. The Greek here for annoyed also means troubled or distressed disturbed or even grieved. I like grieved. Now think about the story. Paul was grieved for this girl who was possessed. So grieved that he commanded the demon to come out of her in the name of Jesus. And it did because demons answer to Jesus. The text doesn't necessarily tell us that this girl came to faith in Christ. It's not there. But I think we have reason to infer that it is right between a conversion story and a conversion story. I think Luke's suggesting that this young girl was perhaps a part of the Philippian church early on. So don't miss the cross-cultural call of Jesus, even in comparing these two women. Lydia is a respected businesswoman. The slave girl isn't a member of the human society at all. She's possessed. She's oppressed. Lydia is a moral and religious person. The slave girl is completely alienated from any moral truth. Lydia has lots to be proud of. The slave girl is completely marginalized. She's a non-person. She has no dignity in that society. Lydia has a moderate amount of social and economic power. The slave girl is completely powerless over her own condition. She is stuck. Because this young girl was enslaved, not just by a demon, but by evil men who were essentially trafficking her for their own gain. This is not too far removed from the modern trafficking stories that you hear about, read about, that you care about, the sex trafficking stories. This girl is a victim of her economic situation. And she's in a society that took advantage of people in low poverty situations. So much so that she was taken in by men who may have made her promises, I don't know. But they certainly took advantage of her. And they used her. And then Jesus writes himself into her story. Why? Because Jesus loves the oppressed. Jesus loves the marginalized. Jesus loves the alienated and even the enslaved. He works toward their deliverance, both in the physical enslavement and in their spiritual bondage. Jesus loves the oppressed. These are the stories that Jesus is writing himself into. And I I do want to say to you, we'll come back to this at the end, but you may just be a tool that Jesus uses to deliver people like this little girl. It's why you support and partner with great organizations like the International Justice Mission. It's why you fight against 
horrendously degrading presence of pornography, both in your life, your personal use, and even in the culture, because you cannot argue against the proven link between the videos you view and the enslavement of women and girls and boys all across the world who are oppressed, who are possessed for your viewing pleasure. It's awful. And Jesus loves them. And he brings a message of hope and deliverance. And so we pray that he would deliver them. And we fight for their deliverance in any ways that we can. Jesus loves this little girl. And I, and I love to think that when she heard this good news from these missionaries, she was a part of that Philippian church too. Here's the lesson for the second point. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Both the wealthy haves and the economically strapped have-nots. The gospel is for everyone. And so we see in the first two stories and we see it in this third narrative, the story of the blue-collar failure. After the girl was delivered from her demons, her human oppressors were angry, of course. They were threatened. Their money uh, was taken away from them through this. And so they start working with the systems at play, the magistrates, and they start accusing Paul and Silas of crimes. Crimes they didn't commit. They were falsely accused. So Paul and Silas were unjustly beaten. They were wrongly imprisoned. And once again... What man meant for evil, God intended for good. Because even though they shut these men into confines in the prison, the inner prison, they couldn't shut their mouths from singing hymns and praying. Isn't that amazing? After all they've been through, unfairly accused, unjustly arrested, undeservedly beaten, and now unreasonably imprisoned. And then verse 25 says, About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And just then, in God's perfect timing, he begins to work a deliverance plan for Paul and Silas from their imprisonment through this earthquake. But they didn't run like the, the walls came down, their feet were unshackled, and they didn't run. They just stayed there. They were free. But they were so filled with compassion for someone else who was still in bondage. And so they stayed. Who was still in bondage? The prison guard. Who was planning to end his own life. Because he knew that what the freedom of these prisoners meant. It meant his condemnation. Most likely this Roman jailer would have been like a retired soldier. So I want you to get a profile in mind for who this guy is. He would have been a retired Roman soldier, a veteran. Older maybe. Who's spending his remaining years working a low paying government job. Watching over the prisoners. In other words, he's just a normal dude under a lot of pressure. That's who this guy is. A blue-collar employee who just failed big time. And he feels it really deeply, and so he reaches for his sword to end his life. It's a gruesome scene with an amazing intervention. 
Because Jesus writes himself into the story. Because Jesus loves average people. Average people, even when they feel like more than average failures. Verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called out for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and they brought, he, uh, they brought them out and said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. <clears throat> it's interesting here, the word saved has the same root as the one used by the possessed girl earlier. She says, these men bring salvation. He says, what must I do to be saved? Saved means deliverance, right? It's what is he asking for? What's the blue collar employee asking for? You know what he's actually asking for? Who's going to get me out of this mess? That's what he's asking. I know we use this this verse a lot to be like, what must I do to be saved? I'm not sure that was the depth of his question. I think he's asking who can help me out? I think the salvation that he's looking for could be on two levels, but it's certainly on the temporary level. Do you see that? Like he's saying, how can I get out of this? I'm a failure. I'm about to kill myself. Who can fix this? He may have been asking for the temporary solution, but Paul and Silas give him a permanent one too. They answer the question on two levels. Here's how you can be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The offer of the gospel is both for you and your whole household. You'll be saved. Here's why I think this is important. Jesus enters this man's story on two levels. The temporary salvation from the condemnation he dreads because of his failures in life. And so much more. Jesus saves him from the ultimate and permanent condemnation that he deserves because of his sins. Listen, Jesus has written himself into your story much the same way. There is nothing, there is nothing that this world can throw at you that you don't have a refuge in Christ to stand up under. Nothing. He may not save you from your circumstances, but he can save you in the middle of them. And some of you have seen that very well. Condemnation, fear, ruined reputation, being left out or blackballed, being talked about, being cheated on, being the one who cheated on, failing your classes, failing relationships, being dumped, addicted, depressed, confused, despairing, might Jesus be writing himself into that narrative too? To meet you right where you are, even tonight. You remember the Dorothy Sayers story from the beginning. Those who've read and studied her work have come up with a theory about the relationship between Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey. They believe that Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she had created and she saw one of the characters that she had made, and she pitied him. She saw that he was lonely and she loved him, so she wrote herself into the world that she had created in order to enter into a relationship with him. 
C.S. Lewis writes in one of his books that if Hamlet, you know, the Shakespearean character, were to ever want to get to know Shakespeare, the writer, it would be Shakespeare's own doing to make that happen. Does that make sense? The character cannot get to know the writer unless the writer himself writes himself into the story. In other words, the only way Hamlet could ever know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare wrote himself into the narrative. Listen, your creator has written himself into the narrative. Have you found yourself in one of these stories? I hope that you find somebody that maybe you kind of can link arms with. I thought about it tonight on the way over here, and I thought I'm in every one of these stories in a different way. If so, if you found yourself in one of these stories, I want you to find Jesus too. See that he comes to meet the individual needs of individual people, just like you. That Jesus is the answer to all of Lydia's intellectual questions, and yours too. There's no crazy thing a professor can say to you that you can't find an answer to. Not one. There's no longing that you have on a deep intellectual or spiritual level that Jesus can't himself meet. Also, Jesus is the deliverance for the slave girl's desperate bondage. And yours too. And Jesus is the purpose and the redemption offered for even the average man's failures. And yours too. The gospel is for everyone. And though these three people are worlds apart, economically, socially, ethnically, or otherwise, they have but one common Savior who loves them all and who brings them all together in one common body. And he does this only through his body being broken for their brokenness. You know, this was amazing when it hit me this week. When Jesus was brought out to be crucified, they put two things on him to mock him. Remember where they were? The crown of thorns and what? A purple robe. Purple. Purple. Like the dye that Lydia would sell. To mock him. To mistreat him and to falsely imprison him like Paul and Silas were falsely imprisoned. And they beat him. And they hung him on a cross. Jesus was by the world's account a colossal failure. But what man meant for evil, God intended for good, for the salvation of many, because the purple bruises that Jesus certainly had over his body were eventually healed. His perceived failure became a story of cosmic redemption. And his imprisonment, his imprisonment, meant freedom from bondage for those who trust in him. He stood under condemnation so that you and I would be set free. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. I I heard a quote yesterday from a psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson, and he wrote one of his books. He says, we all are born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. We're all born into the world. He means this on a literal, like, biological level. Childbirth. Looking for someone. Looking for you. See Jesus. Seeing you. He's written himself into the story, even at a great cost, to love you. 
to meet your loneliness, to meet your longings, to satisfy your questions and to set you free. And if you're a believer, don't miss that there was always someone else in this mission with Jesus too. Have you ever thought that you would like to be a part of something bigger than yourself? I've mentioned this before. Sometimes that's what you're making your entire college career out of, right? Wanting to be a part of something so much bigger than yourself. That's why you're chasing the certain jobs that you're chasing or picking the major that you picked. And that's good. You can be a part of something bigger than yourself, but I have an opportunity for you. It's not a pyramid scheme. Something so much better. You get to be a part of the greatest story that's ever been told. You get to be a part of the greatest mission that's ever been launched. Jesus is inviting you, if you're a Christian, to be a part of this mission of rescuing people all over the world. Bringing together people from lots of different backgrounds to turn the world upside down the way he did it in Philippi. The way he's doing it even in the upstate of South Carolina. With one message of hope and redemption and reconciliation. Even on a campus like this. Even on a campus like this, this ethnically divided, racially divided at times. Um, divided in other ways, right? You have the Greek students and the non-Greek students. You have the athletes and the non-athletes. You have the engineers and everybody else. You, like, <laughs> Jesus brings together people from lots of different backgrounds for his glory and for the beauty of his work. Uh, I'm close with this illustration and apply in a couple of ways we'll be done. Several years ago, Kelly and I uh, attended a play where we were really confused when we read the description. You know how you can read the description of the thing that you're going to go see? And it doesn't always tell you a lot, but there was a line in there that really confused us. Uh, we're trying to figure out what it meant. It said it was like a, it was, it was one of these like mystery, like it was a play about like a murder mystery, but in a comedy sort of way, you know, real edgy that way. And it said, uh, you get to play armchair detectives along with the actors on stage. And we're like, armchair detectives? And I remember we literally were like, does that mean there's going to be like a voting device on our chair that we're going to like interact? That's not at all what it meant. Armchair detective is this person like who, yeah, we felt really dumb when we got there. And we're like, where are the buttons? Um, and so armchair detective is this idea, this picture of you're sitting on the sidelines and you're participating from the distance. And so what they meant is that like we were going to be literally like voting and saying, he did it. No, she did it. And it was kind of weird that way, but it was fine. It was a fun play. But here's the point. Some of us. Some of us think of missions and evangelism as Christian armchair detectives. Like that we're sitting back and we'll let them do it. And then we'll critique them that they didn't do it the way I would have done it, but I ain't doing it, but they didn't do it the way I would have done it. And you can even do that in campus ministry, right? Leave the evangelism to the navigators. They're great at it. Or crew. The missions to campus outreach or FCA. Armchair detectives. That's not the story that Jesus is calling you into as a Christian. I think there can be some passivity among Christians, particularly Christians who consider themselves reformed. So can I speak to you for a minute? If you consider yourself to be reformed in your theology... I think a lot of times we can be more passive than others. But I would argue that Reformed Christians should be the most evangelistic Christians on earth. Why? Because we believe that God is the one who changes hearts. I think Reformed Christians should be the most prayerful Christians on earth. Why? Because we believe that God is the one 
who changes hearts. I think reformed Christians should be the most humble Christians on earth. Why? Because God's the one who changed our hearts. I think reformed Christians should be the most welcoming of all the Christians on earth. Why? Because we know the gospel is for everyone. And that's really good news. We believe that Jesus is at work writing himself into the story. And so here's my final lesson for you under that point three. God can use anyone to show that the gospel is for everyone. We see that in three ways in this passage. Three quick ways if you just think about the stories of the three different methods of evangelism. And I really hope this takes some of the pressure off. We think of evangelism sometimes as like a canned gospel presentation. I've got to say it right. I've got to get through my points, get through the scriptures, and blah, blah, blah. Do you believe? And we wrap it up. But look at this. Like, think about these three stories. Lydia came to faith through a small group Bible study or a prayer group. You can invite your non-Christians to your small group. You know that, right? Let them hear you interact with the word of God. Pray with other Christians. That's a great thing to do. The slave girl was delivered through someone standing up for her and fighting for her injustices. You can partner with great organizations that work to bring justice into the world. Justice for victims of sex trafficking or sexual abuse, victims of racism or injustices in the world. These are gospel-centered causes. These are not just social issues out there. These are at the center of the gospel because Jesus has written himself in to these stories. And finally, how did the prison guard come to faith in Christ? Did you catch how he came to faith in Christ? Through seeing Christians worship when life was going terribly for them. I don't know how you think of worship. I have a feeling how some of you think of worship. It's a good feeling when you're feeling great. You're in the right setting, the right music. They were worshiping from their inner jail cell, praying, singing hymns, the text tells us. And this guy watched Paul and Silas stand under their false accusations, take their beatings with faith that God was still at work. And he heard their singing amidst their suffering and he heard their prayers amidst their awful life position. And when he thought his life was over, who in the world could he turn to for the hope of salvation? Those guys. In these stories, you don't have a bunch of canned gospel presentations. There's a place for that, but you don't have it here. You have Christians living a consistent life of faith and engaging anyone and everyone with the good news of Christ as they had an opportunity. So Christians, if, if, you are a, if you're a believer, I want you to know that the world is watching you. The world's watching you. RUF's not just watching you. Your Christian circle's not watching you. The, the world is watching. They hear your prayers. They see your worship. They see you standing up for injustices or not. They're observant about your small groups and your campus ministries and if it makes a difference in your life at all. And every single one of these endeavors is yet another opportunity to be a witness, even be a martyr, same word, for the sake of Christ, who has written himself into your story for his glory and for your good. I want to close with a prayer. This is from the Apostle Paul that he wrote about 15 years later to this church, the church of Philippi, which was made up of at least three people and so many others years later. 
This comes from Philippians chapter 1. I want you to close your eyes and we'll end with this prayer that Paul prayed for these Christians.